Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital. We're a registered investment advisory firm committed to helping clients grow and manage generational wealth. We do this by focusing on integrity, competency, and transparency each and every day. No matter where you find yourself on the investing journey, our hope is that these conversations, stories, and interviews can empower and equip all investors with fresh insight and perspective on the capital markets. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Today, we sit down for another squared away conversation here on Charting the Course. And of course, as always, I'm joined by Chief Investment Officer Zach Reynolds and one of Full Sail's investment analysts, Mr. Austin Burks. Today, we're going to sit down and digest everything that's happened during the first half of the year. We're going to look ahead and then we'll end with some of the just the power of patience and how important it is to be patient as an investor. So one thing we will reference during the episode, as we have done in the past, is our most recent summer market update. If you'd like a copy of that, let me know. Go through our website, send me a message via the contact page and we'll be sure to try to get you an electronic version of that Summit Market Update. It's packed full of good information. Of course, always has some information about our firm in general, some highlights of everything that's going on just within the firm. So here's my conversation with Zach and Austin as we sit down for another Squared Away. Zach, Austin, thank you for joining me down here in the studio for another Squared Away. Happy to be here. Glad to be here. Yeah, we've made it through the summer. Now it's still really hot, but fall's coming, right? Football season. In the distant future. We we can see it. Not fast enough. We've got seven months under our belt. Let's do an overview of the first half of the year, what you've seen, even just some stats. I think if people are coming up for air now at the end of the summer, like where are we? What's the market doing? And then we'll get into a little bit of looking ahead at some Fed moves and things like that. But let's start there, recap the first half of the year. I think going back to January, January 1st, and we all have short memories, markets have short memories, but if you do go back seven months and think about the mood, the attitude, what you were hearing on CNBC from Wall Street strategists, it was very negative and not surprising. People have recency bias. 2022 was a really tough year in a lot of ways. Equities were down, bonds were down, and Wall Street strategists were predicting more of the same in 2023. I remember being in a lot of client meetings where people would say, hey, I I keep hearing the first half of the year is going to be terrible. And it maybe gets better in the back half of the year, but man, money market rates are higher. Maybe we should get out of the market and just wait it out. I heard that over and over. My response is, I don't know. And we're very consistent in saying it's impossible to predict short-term market moves. In, in this case, it worked very much in our favor, not getting out of the market. Markets have surprised almost everybody this year. The S&P, as we record, this is up almost 20%. Nobody had that on their bingo card. I was reading yesterday in Bloomberg, just the massive miss by Wall Street strategists. They're all scrambling to raise their year-end price targets. And it just goes to show you, don't turn on the TV and make investment decisions based on what you're hearing. People want to do that. It's a bad idea. It goes back to the Hazel comment here real quick about when you turn the TV on and you read an article, who are they talking to? They, they may be talking to somebody specifically, some small little pocket of an investor, yep. but they're Those probably not traders. right. You're going to buy the earnings call is what right. he always talks about. Morgan always jokes about it. And it's a perfect example. So if you were listening or watching it, who are they talking to? So SP's up. 20% really as we record this, where have you guys seen some of the gains come from? What sectors or, or stocks specifically? I think the big story, as everyone knows so far, year to date has been the technology sector with what's been dubbed the Magnificent Seven. Some of these mega cap stocks that are leading the market so far year to date. And, and part of that has been catalyzed by this revolution in kind of adopting and embracing AI as a means of what is coming next in, in the future. 
And what's interesting to look at is especially when this has emerged was back in March, which was the, as we all know, the banking crisis with Silicon Valley Bank. And at that time, everyone was freaking out saying, is the financial system going to collapse? Is there contagion at play? Everyone, again, even we go back to looking at conventional wisdom at the beginning of the year saying the Ford outlook is not looking pretty great. Even in March, people were saying the same thing. We're not sure what's going to happen. We should go to money market. The yields are great. Let's do it. And then since then, you've seen this historic rally within not only just the NASDAQ and the S&P 500, but these seven stocks in particular. And so it's been very interesting to see that kind of headline what has been the main drivers of return so far this year. And you look at last year, technology was one of the worst performing categories. And even at the beginning of this year, you look at cost of capital and interest rates going up, meaning it's more expensive for these companies to borrow money. You would typically assume that they wouldn't have this massive rally within technology. And yet that's exactly what you've seen. It's a really good point. You can tell a story or you mm -hmm. could tell a story back then in January, December of why it would be a bad year for technology, right? And it made sense. And it's one of those things, again, if you're listening out there, there are really good salespeople out there who are going to be able to tell you a story on both sides, right? And it's going to be pretty compelling. And it was compelling for people to say technology is probably going to have another terrible year. And instead, AI comes out and the market goes the other way. The same is true as we think back to March of this year, the banking crisis. It turned out okay. Right. We know that because we have the, the benefit of hindsight. It could have gone the other way. I think I'm always hesitant to give government regulators any credit. But in this case, they stepped in. They backstopped deposits, which stopped the flight to the mega banks. Like a lot more banks could have failed, I think, if they had not done that because depositors were acting rationally and moving their money to make sure they had that FDIC insurance or moving to a mega bank like JP Morgan. It was not guaranteed that it turned out OK, but it did. What you have to understand as an investor, there's lots of potential outcomes, especially over the short run. That's why you have to have that long-term focus. One other thing, Tyler, if I can, we talked about, and Austin did a good job talking about why large cap stocks have done well largely driven by technology. One thing that we've really watched because we're diversified investors is the performance of mid cap, small cap, US stocks, international stocks, which halfway through the year had underperformed pretty substantially relative to large cap stocks, still up, up less than double digits. One thing I've been encouraged by from the end of June to when we're recording this is you've really seen a broadening out of the rally. You've got small and mid cap US stocks up over 10% now, developed international stocks up about 14 as we're recording this, emerging markets it's up double digits. You're seeing the rally just broaden out. And I think that was something that a lot of people pointed to as a potential area of concern if we didn't see that. So I'm pretty encouraged by that. And then valuations is something we look at too. Austin, I know that's something we talk about in our group a lot. What are you seeing as you look at different asset classes and, and current valuations? Even just looking at the S&P 500 so far, we're currently sitting above the 25-year average, which is 7.5, let's say, but we're currently at 19 and a half, which means we're just, we are overvalued compared to the 25-year average. However, that has come down some and it what you're also seeing is it's no longer having such a higher concentration within those seven stocks, even though those have been the drivers of return so far this year. Like you just said, we have seen some diversification within returns and within valuations, just being able to spread out between not just being so concentrated at the top. So what are you seeing from other asset classes? You, you mentioned large cap. And when we say when we're talking about valuations, you're throwing out these numbers. This is price to earnings. So how many times you're paying for a dollar of earnings? So you're paying $17 for one earnings if the PE is 17. So what are we seeing from small cap, 
U.S., mid-cap U.S., international. I don't know if I have that right now. But Do you have something you want to talk lo- about? Lower on average right. than, like, if we say U.S. large-cap stocks are overvalued relative to the last 15, 20 years, if you look at U.S. small-cap or mid-cap, they're trading either at longer-term averages or below. So U.S. large-caps look expensive relative to themselves historically and quite expensive relative to U.S. small-cap, U.S. mid-cap, or international stocks now. That, that relationship has been true for a decade plus. So one thing as we talk about valuations is they're relatively decent historic predictors of long-term returns. They are not good predictors of short-term returns. And just because the S&P is at 22, let's say at about 21, 22, we're somewhere in there right now, depending on if you're looking at forward earnings, trailing earnings, but it's above average. That doesn't mean that in the next 12 months, the market's more likely to fall than it is to rise, right? Because we know valuations can get more expensive late 90s S&P trade up near 30 times. So stocks can still go up and get more expensive. It just implies to us over a long period of time as we do things like financial planning that we might want to expect lower returns. So the other thing that can happen, and this is going on right now too, is you look at earnings can come up and that can bring your valuation multiple down too. It's hard to do if we have a recession, which is another thing that we may want to talk about because sure. that's been, the recession's been six months out for have we, two have years we been now. Through it? Did we see it? Did we miss <laughs> yeah. it? Right. Any economic thoughts, guys, as we look out there? No, I, I think that obviously it's too early in the year to ring the victory bell for the full year of 2023. But so far, um, at least in the first half of this year, the, the promised recession session has been very elusive and we haven't seen that sucker punch or the, the two punch combo of both high inflation and a recession at the same time. And you're seeing some inflation numbers come back, especially within the areas that have been really sticky so far, like corn CPI. And you're seeing that those numbers are starting to come down, meaning it's cooling off. Some of these rate hikes that the Fed has implemented are beginning to work their way into the system. And you're starting to see recession metrics. I think it's a 25% chance it's come down to that we see a recession versus at the beginning of this year, I would say most people would take that bet that we were going to see a recession this year. Totally agree. Tyler. So I want to go back and talk about two things. One, valuation specifically to the bond sector, the bond market. And then two, I want to talk about the market cap of just these big, massive companies we're seeing. Are we concerned about that going from like that FANG rally we had earlier in the decade to now the Magnificent Seven? And then I want to get a little bit of input on the valuation of the bond market. I think it's reasonable to recognize that there are six, seven stocks that make up 20 plus percent of the S&P 500. I think that's reasonable. Any stock, any individual stock has higher risk than the market as a whole, right? We agree on that. I think you do have to look at a stock like Apple though, that this isn't 1999 where you're buying on hopes and dreams and pre-revenue companies. Apple is tremendously profitable with a huge economic moat. How many of you are willing to give up your iPhones, right? Like we're almost, tra- a, almost a value company at this point. Yeah, Apple's getting included certainly in some value indexes and we're not big factor investors, so we but, won't argue right, growth yeah. versus value. But if you don't own Apple, then you're missing out on a very large part of the market. Is there a little bit of concern there? Sure. And that's why if you look at our stock portfolios, we own over 10,000 different stocks. Is Apple at a $3 trillion roughly market cap going to be $10 trillion in 10 years, that's that's really hard, right? You just run into the law of large numbers where there's only so many consumers out there who can buy an iPhone. That's why they continue to have to look for other ways to make money. But again, like one of the beauties, and I wrote about this in one of our market updates, the beauty of a cap weighted, so market cap weighted, the largest company has the biggest weighting index approach is as other companies come up, 
you start to see them increase in market value relative to or, or market weight in your portfolio relative to those other companies. So if Apple stagnates, then you're going to see other companies take market share or take a uh, portfolio weight away from Apple. Tyler, you mentioned just comparing the size and it is it's remarkable to think that Apple crossed over its total market cap was higher than the Russell 2000. Russell 2000 is U.S. small cap stocks. So the smallest 2000 U.S. stocks are smaller in aggregate than one single company, Apple. We're relatively bullish on small caps, largely driven by valuations over a long period of time. And history tells us we've got 100 years of history saying small caps tend to outperform with more risk. So adding them to your portfolio, they're going to have add some diversification and should add some performance over time, even though you are taking more risk. I think the argument is reasonable that... Maybe it's not Apple, but maybe it's a top 10 S&P 500 company 10, 15 years from now is a small cap stock today. And so the beauty for investors like us is we're going to own it today in our small cap ETF. It's going to become a mid cap stock and then it's going to become a large cap stock. Right. So we're going to we're going to benefit from that growth over time. Whereas if you're a stock picker and you don't own that stock, and we've seen this with so many of the mega cap stocks today. But what if you didn't own NVIDIA? this year. You're lagging the market. So it's just to us, it's a much safer approach to own all of the stocks than it is to try to pick a few of them. Than to try to pick the Magnificent Seven of next year. Correct. You want to talk about bonds as well? Yeah. We can just take a little bit of time before we move on to the next section. Austin, you mentioned we've got declining inflation. The Fed moves have begun to work their magic, if you will, in the sense of the bond market. So one thing we've talked about a lot is the bond portion of a portfolio is really finally carrying its weight where it really hadn't been doing the previous three to five years, if you will. So let's spend a little bit of time there. What you're seeing with money market rates, we've already talked about our four, seven, five, five percent. And it's crazy T-bills, treasuries. So anything specifically in the bond market you guys want to hit on? No, I, I think as far as the bond market goes, just looking at even first half of the year, just a quick recap of how things have gone. The Bloomberg Barclays U.S. Aggregate Index, which measures the U.S. bond market essentially, climbed more than 2% to start the first half of the year. You've seen both corporate bonds and tax-free municipal bonds that have been gaining as well. But mostly looking at the way the, and the relationship between rising rates, interest rates, and bonds, you are seeing, at least as you look out, and we have a Fed meeting coming up, and the expectation is that rates are going to raise, it's going to be 25 basis point hike. And whenever you do have an increase in interest rates, usually you have a decrease in bond prices. The 10-year treasury rate, it had the worst single year return in over a century because of the rapid pace of interest rate hikes, which are inversely correlated to the price. But looking ahead, you're starting to see, if you look at what kind of the Fed predictions are and and the percentages, I have them here, but basically looking ahead towards the end of the year, the expectation from most people is that we'll have one more hike and then we'll be done for the year and then start cutting rates next year. And so looking ahead to that, whenever you have rates cut, that's actually going to increase the price in bonds. I mean, I guess as a forward forecast, in a, in a sense, that is an expectation I, I would say the market has. But it's again, it can change. We may have inflation numbers come in too hot. The thing that I would add to that is you we have such a larger cushion today from higher starting interest rates. So go back to 2021, early 22, rates were much lower. That meant that as interest rates increased. You had that negative effect from prices going down, which pushed total return negative. This year, rates have gone up this year. 
from January to today, we still have positive bond returns. And the reason why is you're getting much higher starting income than you were. What I love, one of my favorite charts is looking at forward bond returns, so prospective returns and starting yields. And there is a very high correlation that makes perfect sense, right? If you hold a bond to maturity, you're going to expect to get that yield plus or minus just a little bit based on reinvestment. And that is affected by interest rate changes over time. So we know today with much higher starting interest rates, and you mentioned incredibly safe, the safest bonds in the world, T-bills, right? We can go buy a T-bill at 5%. We're going to get 5%. And that is just a massive sea change from where we were a few years ago. And it does make it as an asset allocator, and that's what we are, it makes it much easier to construct portfolios that are to the left as we think about risk return spectrum, meaning less risky, but earning returns that are close to what clients require to achieve their financial goals. Now, the other component of that is talking nominal, right? Meaning not taking into account inflation. Higher inflation means your real return, even if your nominal return is higher, could not be great. Your real return is obviously subtracting. I don't know if we've said it yet or not. Where is inflation as of recording? Where are we today? Yeah, year over year, we're dipping down to, I think the latest CPI annualized was in the threes. Isn't that right? I believe so. Come down substantially. Remember last year we had a 9% CPI print. Today, we've cut that in half. I think that's safe to say. There are, when you dive down into the numbers, and you mentioned this earlier, Austin, there are different components of inflation, and you've got headline CPI, and then you've got core CPI, and the headline is now below core. I recall correctly. So there are still components of CPI that we'd like to see come down. One important component is that housing component. And if you think about housing, if and it's weird, owner's equivalent rent is if you want to Google it, that's how they measure it. It doesn't make perfect sense, honestly. Like if you own a home, here's what you would pay if you had to rent that home. Not how mortgages work, fortunately. So if you have a 3% mortgage like me, you're pretty happy that you don't have to pay the implied rent that would be in the market today. But the other thing is, if you are a renter, you're signing a one-year lease, most likely. So that takes some time to work through, and rent rates have been going up substantially over the years. So some of that inflation takes time to work its way out of the system. But I think you have to say, and assuming that we're recording this the day before the Fed meets, but assuming they increase rates, as Austin mentioned, that'll be 11 increases since this hiking cycle started. That is substantial. And for the economy to hold up as well as it has, for the market to hold up as well as it has, particularly this year, I think that's a lot of sign of optimism and confidence and strength in the economy that we can withstand rates going up that much. And even the housing market is holding it in there. Okay. Resilience issues there. So we've already mentioned the Fed. And again, full disclosure, we're recording this the day before the Fed meeting. So it'll be coming out after the fact. And we pretty much fully disclose that we feel like there will be a hike. It's Um, virtually 100% at this point. It's what the market is predicting. (laughs) Something terrible happened later this afternoon. So real quick, before we get to the last part that I want to end on, just from a conversation standpoint, and really some advice standpoint from you two. As you look ahead, and again, we're assuming that the Fed does, in fact, raise the rates this week as you're recording this. As we get into what we consider an environment where they're going to be pausing, they're going to look at inflation, they're going to look at rates. What are things you're watching for? What are things in the economy that you're trying to say, okay, if this happens, it's a positive sign. If this happens, it's a negative sign. Of course, we're not predicting anything. We're not trying to read a crystal ball here, but just give us some viewpoints as you guys have talking points for as an investment committee. Yeah, I think the two big things are what's the path of inflation going forward? The Fed clearly has made great progress. We are at or near the end of the hiking cycle 
which probably an increase tomorrow. Last I looked, there's about a 50% chance if we get one more or not. So we'll see. But if inflation continues to come down, one of the big questions out there is, will the Fed hold rates really high until inflation gets back down to 2%, which is their long run target? Or will they declare victory at 25 3%? A lot of people think they will, and there will be pressure on them to do so. 2.99. Right? If you hit the two handle, yeah. do we start cutting rates? That's just an unknown to me. I, I don't know what will happen. I think a lot depends on what's going on in the economy. So do we have that 25% recession probability? Does it come to pass? If so, that puts a lot more pressure on the Fed to cut rates. If, remember, the Fed's got a dual mandate. So stable prices, which they want stable to them is 2% increases every year and full employment. And right now they're saying we're going to put less weight on the full employment, more weight on the stable prices. If you start seeing unemployment really go up, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the Fed to start cutting rates again. As we think about portfolio implications, you've got a two-edged sword there, right? If we do have a recession, that's bad for stocks. Higher unemployment is bad for stocks. If that leads to lower rates, that's good for bonds. So that's the scenario where we would expect, and historically that's what's happened, bonds have outperformed. But you could end up then in an environment we may be looking three years down the road or through the next cycle where rates are lower, stocks then you can argue for higher PE multiples with lower interest rates. It's the same things we're going to see multiple times in our career. It's just the investment cycle. What's really hard is as we sit here and July of 2023. We don't know when that cycle is going to turn earlier. Neither do the people on CNBC. Nobody knows. <laughs> I think one of the other interesting things to tag off of that is in the long run, what the expectations have changed as it relates to that terminal interest right. rate. And I, I would say that the vast majority of people are arguing and saying, gone are the days of the zero interest rate environment right. where you can borrow money for free and have a growth startup where you spend all of this money trying to grow a massive consumer base. And so more looking at having a higher interest rate closer to their two and a half percent target to two and a half percent. It'll be interesting to see in the long run if we actually do get there. Some people are even saying it may be a higher target rate or they may raise that final target over the long term. Or do you disagree? I'm smiling over here because something I've been thinking about a lot and reading about is so many people who work in the financial industry, including myself, have worked in this incredibly low interest rate environment. And there's an argument that because of that, and I try to check this in myself, my bias toward my assumption is that rates will return back down. And I can, just like we talked about earlier, I can make a lot of good arguments for that. I think once you've set a president that you can go down to 0% or effectively negative rates because of stimulus, that there's going to be strong political pressure to do. I just think that cat's out of the bag. And so the next time we have a crisis, whether it's a pandemic, terrorist attack, whatever it is, the Fed is going to come under a lot of pressure, I think, to go back that way. That's my argument. But I, I have to realize that's also because my 15-year career has been spent in a zero percent interest rate environment. If I had talked to people around in the 80s, rates still seem low to them, right? Where we are today. Right. So I think you're absolutely right, Austin. I would be hesitant and very careful about making some really strong bet that rates were going to go back down. Even though if I were going to make Selfishly, a bet in a portfolio, right? yeah. that's probably what I do. I have to recognize that's the bias of my own experience in my own career. It is a great question what the terminal rate settles in at. 
if we have inflation go back down to 2%, let's say the Fed's successful, I think you're likely to end up with, and, and this is just looking at Fed funds futures right now, a Fed funds rate that's more like 4% or 3.5%. I think even if you look at the Fed dot plot at what they're expecting, that is the expectation today. Facts are going to change be where we end up, but I would be surprised if we end up with a terminal 6% or 6.5% Fed funds rate. But if you see something break, then yeah. yeah. And even looking back in history, there, there are examples where inflation looked like it was coming back down and then roared back in I think the late 70s, early 80s. So it's not like it couldn't happen. I'm not saying that. It's just my bias and my expectation is the other way. Okay. Zach, one thing you wrote in a recent market up was a whole section on just the power of patience. And I wanted to end our conversation there today because I think that really hits the nail on the head with how really all of us here at Full Sail approach investing. And we have to be reminded of it too, right? Like we we have to remind ourselves to, to be patient. But there's a quote that you put in the market update and that I want you guys to discuss or piggyback off that. But it was Paul Samuelson who's a Nobel Prize winning American economist said, investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take hundred bucks and go to Vegas. I loved it. It's a great quote. It's amazing. But you put that in there for a reason. So I want to take a little bit of time and just talk about the power of patience, what we're, what we are saying to our investors, given everything we've already talked about, according to more of the data and the return side of it. But this is just, in my opinion, more on just the fundamental side of investing. Yeah. I've heard several of our advisors say this, and I think it's very true. Our job is often to lean against whatever emotional feeling our clients have. So if it's markets are going up, it's greed and we're, hey, let's let's rebalance portfolios. Let's not set expectations that markets or stocks are going to go up 15% a year because that's not, we know that's not likely, right? The opposite is true. March of 2020 when COVID was happening, the world is ending. No, it's the world's only going to end once is something I like to say. It's probably not this time. And if it is, then none of this really matters, right? right? Like we have to assume that the the world doesn't end and markets are going to go up over time with a lot of volatility, which is what they do. What struck me and why I included that quote was, you know, you go back to some of the problems we had late 2021, 2022, things like supply chain issues, which supply chain issues caused prices to go up. They were an issue that caused shortages. You remember the ships were all stacked up at the piers. You didn't have enough people. All of those things are problems, but they get solved with time because markets work. So higher prices incentivize new manufacturers to come in or labor to come in. They're going to pay more people to clear out the shortages. They just get fixed, but it takes time. And I think what we as a society are so bad about is just having a little bit of patience and recognizing that if we let markets work, they will come up with a solution. Markets are so good at that. The same is true with things like inflation. And I made this argument couple years ago or a year and a half ago when this first started was inflation, you can have runaway inflation. And if you have policy errors and mistakes, then particularly we did in the late seventies or a a confluence of factors like shortages in oil, like it can get out of control. And that's a problem because consumers start to have expectations. But I think it was pretty clear early on that even though the Fed was late to the game, once they started raising interest rates, they made it very clear they were going to try to kill inflation. And then again, it's just a game of patience. You just have to wait to let those higher interest rates work their way through the market. And it was either going to be a recession that caused prices to come back down because you're going to have demand that that decreased, or it looks like we might thread the needle here and have some sort of soft landing or avoid a recession, which is the best case scenario. But technology stocks is another one that that I mentioned. With technology stocks, there can be a lot of hype and excitement and they get overvalued. We saw that in 2022. People who wanted to be completely out of the sector missed out on the fact that there's also tremendous innovation 
And there's a reason why tech stocks tend to trade above market levels and things can happen like the AI revolution that are unexpected. The other thing is technology stocks are, as a rule, really profitable because they have relatively few employees. So their margins are higher. They make for a pretty good investment and they can have really tremendous scale. And that's what we've seen from things, companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon. And that's why they tend to have really high market concentrations too. I think even as it relates to the supply chain and kind of just some evidence of that, the release of some of these kinks in the system that were there with the supply chain system, EVs, electric vehicles, right now you're starting to see inventories actually pile up at dealerships where dealers are cutting, like you look at Tesla, they've cut the price. Ford has cut the price of the F-150. Tesla's finally releasing their cyber trucks now. And so you're starting to see, and this is just one anecdotal area of evidence, but you are starting to see other areas within the supply chain loosen up and fix themselves or revert back to the mean of just working again after they were shocked by the world basically shutting down overnight. So I think one of the other areas to add on to what you're saying about the power of patience, I think also along with patience, a lot of times that is lost within investing is like the sense of humility that comes along with being patient. We talk about the commentators on the squawk box and calling the market, saying where it's going to go. But a lot of times they're not even talking to the wide market. They're talking to a very niche investor. But one of the great sins within investing is arrogance. And when you don't have humility to approach the situation as we don't know what it's going to do, it becomes very emotional. It becomes very emotionally taxing. When the market's down, it hurts. When it's up, you're afraid you're going to lose it. And it's like, where's that point you're going to be happy with investing? And I think what you're talking about, that low volatility, that hope that the market is actually pretty stable and just going to keep going up to the right, you don't want it to be super rocky. You don't want it to be jumping, but it takes humility and patience to acknowledge we're not going to be reactionary. We're not going to just listen to, oh, this person's saying the the market's crashing. This person's saying it's going up. Let's do both. You have to have conviction in your investment principles and the ability to not be emotional and to stay patient and to stay invested. And what comes to mind, we'll call out the great Morgan Housel again. He talks about, it's not about earning great returns over a short period of time, right? It's about earning average returns for a really long time. You let the multiplier of compounding really do the heavy lifting. And the temptation, the siren song in investing is back in 2020 when COVID hit, getting out of the market, right? A huge temptation. Would it cost you so much money, right? Generational opportunity, really, looking yeah. back. And then same thing in 2022, it would have been so easy to get out of the market and miss out on what's been a fantastic 2023 in the stock market so far. So just staying disciplined. I know we we say it a lot on this podcast, but it really does work. And again, I, I like to say this too, especially to younger investors, we're going to have lots more things that are scary and go wrong. But the reward, the benefit for staying invested is you do get to benefit from that compounding effect over time that is just a tremendous wealth creator. Again, our advisors, Tyler, you guys and your team do a great job of keeping people focused on that long term. And I think it is one of the certainly one of the most important things, if not the most important thing we do, more so than what Austin and I are doing in the, in the back of the office. I don't know. <laughs> I, I beg to differ because I, I haven't had that always and I would never not have that now is have a team like you guys do behind us. So gentlemen, I appreciate it. As always, thank you for the information. We'll do it again soon. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe to your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. 
All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.